What is winning in your life and in your world today? Is it judgment? Or bondage? Is it greed? Or shame? Or doubt? What if grace won? Our life in this world would be different. Join us for this timely and powerful five-week study. The good news of the gospel is that grace wins. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And, and as you're turning there, you know, if you, if you know me, then you know that I am a, a big sports fan. I especially love baseball and uh, college football. And, uh, you know, I think when it comes to, to sports fans, there, there's always something to debate about. Uh, there's always something to argue about. I think that's half the fun of sports is just arguing about different things uh, related to that. But, but one thing that, that pretty much all sports fans I know can agree on is that uh, we just don't like teams that win all the time. Right? We just get tired of it, right? And so, uh, you know, in baseball, you know, you think about the Yankees, right? And so no, no offense to Yankees fans, okay? But, but unless you're a Yankees fan, you can't stand the Yankees, right? I mean, they've won like 25 World Series or something like that. And I know for me as a Braves fan, part of it is just I'm still bitter that we lost a couple World Series back in the 90s to the Yankees. I, I just can't get over it. But, uh, but nobody else likes them either. It's, it, you know, in football, it's, it's that way with the Patriots, right? The New England Patriots. Uh, you know, uh, Belichick. And, and Brady, right, just, just are the worst, except for now, uh, now Brady plays for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and so I'm willing to let it go. I, I forgive him for everything, and I fully embraced him. Uh, you know, in college football, it, it's the Alabama Crimson Tide, right? I mean, it just win and win, and it's, and it's nothing personal, uh, but, but you just get tired of seeing the same person and the same team win all the time. You know, if there's one thing, though, that none of us get tired of seeing win, it's grace. You know, it's just like that song that we just sang. Grace wins every time. And aren't you glad that it does? I tell you, I'm glad that grace wins over the sin in my life. I know you're glad that grace wins over the sin in your life. I'm thankful that God's grace is big enough no matter what we have done in our life. And we're going to talk about that in this series. We're going to talk about how grace wins over bondage, how it wins over the different things that we can be addicted to that can keep us in chains. We're going to talk about how grace wins over greed and over materialism, how it wins over our shame, how it wins even over our doubts. Today we're going to talk about how grace wins over judgment. Well, let's read the story in John chapter 8. We're actually going to start with the very last verse of John 7, verse 53. Let's read the story together. John 7, 53. And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery 
in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Father, we thank you today for this story of your grace. And I pray, Father God, if there is anyone here that hasn't yet experienced your grace in a personal way, that, Lord, they would experience it today. God, speak to each of us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we jump into our study of this passage this morning, I'm sure some of you may have noticed in your copy of God's Word that this passage is either bracketed Or perhaps there's a note there in the margin that said these particular verses are not found in the oldest Greek manuscripts of the Gospel of John. And that is true. The oldest Greek manuscripts uh, do not contain this story of the woman caught in adultery. Now there's also some question as to whether it was John, the apostle, who wrote this particular story from Jesus' life because the style and the vocabulary of these verses is different than that of the rest of John's gospel. And yet with that said, this story does show up very early in the history of the church. It's found in over 900 of the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Uh, It's referenced by St. Augustine as early as the 3rd century and by Ambrose and Jerome as well. And that's why most scholars, both Protestant and Catholic scholars, believe that this account has all of the markings of an authentic story from Jesus' life that the early church did not want us to lose. For example, New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce calls it, quote, a fragment of authentic gospel material. And so while scholars may argue about where this story belongs in Scripture, whether it be here in John or in Luke's Gospel, a few of the Greek manuscripts uh, contain it in Luke's Gospel, Uh, again, while there may be argument about where it belongs in Scripture, uh, most scholars agree that it does belong in Scripture, and I could not agree with them more. What, What an incredible picture this story gives us of the heart of the love and the grace of our beautiful Savior. And so as we think today about this episode from Jesus' life, uh, as we think about how grace wins over judgment, uh, I want us to see four, I believe, life-altering truths about God's grace in this story. Here's the first truth. We all need grace because we've all sinned. We all need grace because we've all sinned. 
Verses 1 and 2 tell us that the setting is a time when Jesus was going to the temple every day uh, to teach in Jerusalem. And at night, he was staying at the Mount of Olives. We can't be sure, but perhaps he was staying at the home of his friends Lazarus and Mary and Martha, who lived in the village of Bethany just on the far slope of uh, the Mount of Olives. But now it is morning time. Jesus has come back to the temple again. He sat down to teach. At that time, sitting was a position of authority. And many of the people gathered around him in the temple. They were delighted to hear him teach. But then there were some who weren't so excited to hear him teach. Verse 3 calls them the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And and they were held in high regard, high esteem uh, by all the rest of the people. They they viewed them as uber holy, so holy uh, that we can never be like them in, in a thousand lifetimes. And yet maybe you remember that Jesus was not so impressed with them. Uh, Jesus, in fact, reserved some of his harshest criticism for these religious leaders because they liked to look very good on the outside, uh, but they didn't care on the inside that their hearts were not right with God. These men were jealous of Jesus. Uh, They were increasingly opposed to him and, and increasingly were looking for ways to take Jesus down. Uh, We find out in this passage that that's what they were doing here. They were trying to trip Jesus up to get him to say something that they could later use against him. Now, the pawn in their plan was this poor, sinful, broken woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, This woman was caught in adultery in the very act. If you can imagine it, here are these religious men, and they go and take this uh, woman that they had caught in bed with a man who was not her husband. They drag her and take her to the temple and throw her down in front of Jesus, and they say to him, Teacher, this woman right here was caught in the act of adultery. And since Jesus doesn't dispute it, we can take that at face value that this is, in fact, what she had done. But you may wonder, and it's a very fair question, doesn't it take two people to commit adultery? In other words, where is the man? And if, in fact, it is true that they caught them in the very act, then they should have had no problem bringing the man along also instead of just humiliating and threatening this woman. And actually, the law of Moses that they reference in just a moment says that both the man and the woman caught in adultery were to be killed. And so this shows us a couple of things. It shows us, first off, this wasn't really about keeping the law. That wasn't their primary concern. It also shows us that probably this whole thing was a setup. And maybe even the man himself was in on it also, because how else would they have been able to catch them in the act? But whatever the case, it's plain to see that this little display of dragging this woman and throwing her down in front of Jesus really wasn't about the law, and it actually wasn't even about the woman. It was about trapping Jesus and getting him to do or say something wrong. In fact, that's what verse 6 says. It says, this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. You see, they thought that they had him. In verse 5, when they said, well, Moses said that she should be stoned, but what do you say? 
You can tell that they're trying to trap him. And they thought that they had him either way. They thought, this is even better than that time we asked Jesus whether we should pay taxes to Caesar or not. Because whichever way he goes, we have him here. If he says uh, that we shouldn't stone her, well, then he doesn't believe in the law of Moses. If he says that uh, we should go ahead and stone her, if he takes that kind of a hard line position, well, then he's not merciful, he's not compassionate, and everybody in the crowd is going to see that. And so either way, we've got him on the horns of a dilemma here, and there's no way that he can get out. You see, they acted like they were putting the woman on trial, but really they were putting Jesus on trial. Of course, before it was over, Jesus would turn it around and put all of them on trial. As one person put it, Jesus doesn't judge the woman here. He judges the judges. And he does it in an unexpected way. He starts out by not even answering their question. And he sees the woman standing there, I'm sure, shaking and afraid for her very life. He hears the men barking at him that he should stone her to death. And he ignores them all and he stoops down and he starts to write on the ground with his finger. Now, there has been endless debate about what Jesus wrote on the ground with his fingers. A lot of different theories about that. Some people think that he was just doodling. He was just trying to give them time to think. Some people say that he was probably writing what he was about to say. The next verse, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Another popular theory is that he was writing the names and the sins of all the men who were in that circle. Of course, that's possible because he does... Right on the ground, both before and after, he says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. It's also possible, because of course Jesus knew every sin that all of those men had ever committed. The real answer is, we don't know what he wrote. But I do think it's interesting to think about this. In the book of Exodus, it says that the Ten Commandments that were written on those two stone tablets that Moses had were written with the finger of God. Think about that. The same finger that wrote those Ten Commandments on the stone tablets, the same finger that wrote the words, Thou shalt not commit adultery, and thou shalt not bear false witness, that same finger was writing something in the dirt in front of those men that day. And after he wrote on the ground, he stood up and looked them in the eye and spoke the first words that he speaks in this story. Look at verse 7. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And before we get to what Jesus said, I want us to think about what Jesus didn't say. Nowhere in this story does Jesus say that the woman had not sinned. And in fact, at the end of the story, when he tells her to go and sin no more, it's implied there that she had sinned. She never, he never says that she was innocent. He actually never says that her sins weren't worthy of death, just like the men said they were. Because the truth of the matter is, she had sinned, and her sins were worthy of being put to death. And let me make things worse before I make them better. It wasn't just this one woman who was a sinner and deserved to die. It was all of the men who were in the circle around her that day, and it's every single one of us in this room as well. Here's what the Bible says about us and our sin. In Romans 3, 23, it says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All means every single one of us. Maybe we're not all guilty of this particular sin of adultery, but we're all guilty of sin. 
And our sin isn't a little thing to God. It's a big thing. And so if we walk away from this story and our takeaway is, well, man, it kind of seems like Jesus doesn't really care about our sin. It's like not even a big deal to him at all. He just pretends like it never happened. If that's our takeaway from this, then then with with, with all due respect, we've completely missed the point of this story. Jesus is the most holy person that was there by an infinite margin. He wasn't less bothered by this woman's sin than those men were. He didn't turn a blind eye to her sin, and he doesn't turn a blind eye to our sin either. As as we're going to talk about in a few minutes, Jesus knows better than any of us how deadly serious sin is. He knows better than any of us how much it costs to take sin away. Here's how Romans 6.23 puts it. The wages, the penalty of our sin is death. So we're all sinners, just like this woman. We all deserve the death penalty. In fact, the eternal death penalty for our sins. In other words, when you read this story, don't read this story as the story of somebody else. Read it as your own story. And imagine yourself as being there in the middle of all of those pointed fingers. You've been caught in the act of sin. The reality is every one of us has been caught in the act of sin. God has seen every sin we have ever committed, even those we've committed in our minds, our thoughts. So imagine yourself as this woman standing there before Jesus, standing there before the crowd, and knowing that everybody knows your stuff. That everybody knows all the things that you have done, how sinful you really are. Think of yourself as the one who's standing there who really deserves to die because you do, and friends, so do I. And really, that was Jesus' point to the men in the circle that day with the stones in their hands. When he said, he who is without a sin, let him cast the first stone. Again, he wasn't saying that she didn't deserve to die. In fact, in a way... He was giving them permission to start the execution if they were morally qualified to do so, which he knew they weren't, and they knew they weren't. They knew that if she should be stoned, so should they. Jesus doesn't deny her sin, but what he does do is he turns these men's attention away from her sin and onto their own sin. And church, I think that's a really good reminder for us that this this doesn't mean that we never talk about what's right and wrong. And it doesn't mean that we don't call sin, sin. That's not what I'm saying. And, And more importantly, it's not what Jesus is saying. But this does mean that whenever we're talking with anybody else about their sin, that we need to understand that we also are broken sinners. And that we need God's grace every bit as much as anybody else that we will ever meet in our entire lives. And so here's the deal. My job in life and your job in life is not to be a stone thrower. Our job is to be a grace giver. Because we are people who have received God's grace. And when you're a person that has received God's grace, you should be a dispenser of grace. You should be a giver of grace to other broken sinners who are no worse off than you and me. That's the first life-altering truth about grace in this story. We all need it because we're all sinners. Here's the second truth. When we meet Jesus, grace wins. When we meet Jesus, grace wins. 
After Jesus challenged the men about their own sin and asked them to consider whether they were really in a place to throw the first stone, he stoops back down and he starts to write uh, on the dirt again with his finger. And and in verse 9, it says that one by one, the men left. I don't know if they already had stones in their hands or not, but, but if they did, you can almost imagine one thud after the next, right? As each man Becomes convicted, realizes he's not in a place to cast the first stone, and he drops his stone on the ground, and he walks away. The text says that it started with the oldest men, the men who likely had hatched the plan to begin with. After they walked away, the younger men started walking away too, and in the end, there was nobody left except the woman and the Lord. And can you imagine if you were her? what you would have been thinking, what you would have been feeling. I mean, just a few moments before this, she thought she was going to die. But now everybody was gone except for the teacher. And he, but he was a holy man, and holier than she probably even realized at that point. Maybe she wondered, well, what will he do? What will he say? Will I be safe with Jesus? It's interesting that Jesus first asked her a question. You see it there at the end of verse 10. He says to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Why do you think that Jesus asked her that? As I thought about it, I think he wanted her to take note of the fact that all of her accusers were gone. That she wasn't condemned by any of them. Not because she wasn't guilty, but because Jesus had intervened for her. And they had all gone away. And she looks around her and she sees nobody left. And she answers the question. No one, Lord. There's no one left to condemn me now. Except, of course, one person. There's one person still standing there. That was Jesus. Jesus knew better than anybody else what she had done and everything else that she had done in her entire life. And actually, when you think about it, When Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, there was only one person in that circle who met that qualification. There was only one person in that circle who was qualified to throw the first stone, and it was Jesus. He could have picked up a stone and thrown it at her and been absolutely just in doing so. But would he? Does he? Oh, he shows her mercy and grace just like he has shown all of us. And he looked at her with compassion in his eyes and he said to her those words, neither do I condemn you. I mean, take that sentence in for just a moment. Imagine Jesus right now, today, standing in front of you and looking at you in the eyes and knowing everything that you've ever done in your life and saying to you, neither do I condemn condemn you. That's grace. That's grace that wins. I love what Bruce Milne wrote about these words. He said this, quote, here is the miracle of the grace of God. There is no greater wonder than this, the turning of water into wine, the healing of a dying lad by a word, the feeding of 5,000 and more with a snack lunch, the walking on a storm-tossed sea. None of these, nor all of them together, compares with this. That Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. 
In this sentence and in the heart of mercy which lay behind it is all our hope and all our salvation forever. Friend, if you're here and you have always thought, I can never come to Jesus because I've done too much. He'll just judge me. He'll just condemn me like everybody else. And and maybe it's sad to say, maybe part of the reason you feel that way is because you've had more than one run-in in your life with judgmental Christians who have caused you to feel that way. Who have caused you to feel like you can't come to Christ as you are. And yet, here is his very heart for you. He doesn't want to condemn you. He wants to save you. And he wants to accept you. And he wants to forgive you. He wants to adopt you. If you will come to him the very moment that you meet him, grace will win in your life. Maybe you're here and you've been a Christian for a long time. You've always had trouble deep down believing that God has really forgiven you. You've confessed your sin, forsaken your sin. And yet sometimes the voice of the enemy is just too loud. It keeps reminding you of all the stuff that you've done in your life and in your past. And you know you've confessed it. You know that God says he's forgiven you. You just have trouble really believing it. You have trouble not feeling condemned. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful verse. And because there isn't any condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus, it really doesn't matter what other people say. It actually doesn't even matter what sometimes you feel in your weaker moments. What matters is what God has declared to be true of you. He says you're not condemned of Christ. He says the same thing to you that he said to this woman, neither do I condemn you because when you met Jesus, grace won in your life. Here's the third truth about grace. We need to hear this as well. If grace has won, our life will change. If grace has won, our life will change. A minute ago, we looked at the first part of what Jesus said in verse 11, but now let's go back and read the whole thing. He said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Church, both parts of that statement from Jesus are so important. Yes, he shows her amazing grace and he shows us amazing grace as well when he speaks those words, neither do I condemn you, even though he could have condemned her because her sins and our sins are condemnable, but he does not condemn her. But notice he also does not condone what she did. He doesn't say to her, as you were. He doesn't say to her, well, just go on and keep doing what you were doing before and don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. That's not what he said. He doesn't make light of sin in general or of the particular sin of adultery. He is deadly serious about it. And that's why the very next breath after he says, neither do I condemn you, he says, go and sin no more. He calls her to a better life. A life that is free from the sin that has enslaved her up until that point. And friends, that's what Jesus says to every single one of us 
the day that we are saved. He calls us to go and sin no more. He gives us a fresh start. Anybody here feel like they need a fresh start? And then he says, if you come to me and you want to follow me, you need to know that things are going to change. You can't come to me and think that you're going to keep living the way that you were living before. He says to you and he says to me, go and sin no more. Now, now does that mean that when you become a Christian, you will never sin again? Unfortunately, it doesn't. As Christians, we still stumble and we still fall and we will until we get to heaven. But if God's grace has changed us, if we have truly been saved, if his grace has won in our life, then we will want to go and sin no more. That that will be the desire of our heart. In other words, his grace in our heart and in our life will, will change us and transform us so that we no longer want to sin as much as we can and get away with it. But now we hate our sin and we don't want to sin and we want to live a life that glorifies the Lord because he has shown such amazing grace to us. And so friend, if you're here today and you know that God is calling you to come to him for the very first time and to receive Jesus as your Savior, you can already know the two things that he's going to say to you today. When you come to him, he's going to say to you, number one, neither do I condemn you. You're forgiven. The second thing he's going to say to you is go and sin no more. He's going to call you to repentance, to a life that by his grace looks different than the life that you lived before. And you know what? That is also grace. It's also grace that he's calling you to a life that is free from sin, a life that is everything that the God who made you planned for you before the world was even formed. It's an amazing story about how grace can win over judgment. There's one more truth, though, about grace. It's so important that we hear this morning. We need to think about this question. How is it possible that grace can win in my life even in spite of all the things that I've done. Here's how it's possible. Here's truth number four about grace. For grace to win, Jesus had to die. For grace to win, Jesus had to die. And think about it with me. Jesus knew that she had sinned. He knows that we have sinned. Because God is just, he must punish all Sin. He cannot continue to be just and pretend that sin has not happened. He cannot be just and sweep our sin under the rug. Every sin has to be paid for. And so in light of that, how could he look at her and say to her and say to us, neither do I condemn you because we're all guilty. The only way it's possible for him to say those words to us is because of what Jesus would do just a short time after he met this woman. Jesus wouldn't let the crowd throw stones at her. Jesus refused to throw a stone at her himself. But you know what Jesus did? Jesus took her place in the middle of that circle and he let all of us throw stones at him. Friend, don't you see that that is what Jesus did when he hung on the cross? 
But he gave all of us who are sinners a stone, and he let us stone him. He took this woman's stoning that she deserved, and he took the stoning that you deserved and the stoning that I deserved. He took our place in the middle of a circle of angry men on the top of that hill called Calvary, and he let this sinful world put him to death instead of you and instead of me and instead of her. That's why today, if you come to him, He can look you in the eyes and say, neither do I condemn you. It's because of this truth. Listen, Jesus doesn't condemn us because Jesus was condemned for us. He was condemned in our place. He paid the price for our forgiveness. That is why we can stand in God's courtroom and be declared not guilty, even though we are guilty. Because the sinless one took the punishment that you and I deserve. That is what is so amazing about grace. Biblical grace does not mean that Jesus looks the other way. It doesn't mean that he pretends our sin never happens. Biblical grace means he takes our place. And because he did, because he paid the price, he can say, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. That is why grace wins. Let's pray together. Father, what unbelievable grace you've shown to me, forgiving me of all of my sins. Father, what grace you've shown to so many of my brothers and sisters in this room as well. We are not condemned because of Christ. Lord, I pray that one here today that hasn't received your mercy yet, maybe because they thought they couldn't come, I pray today, Father, they would know that they can come just as they are and you will receive them and you will not turn them away. And you will change them by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.